0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What is the difference between homicide and murder? How do you determine the charges? And what are the different degrees of murder? We'll get to all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. We'll If you've tuned into the news at all over the last couple of weeks, you'll know the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has been front and center of the airwaves. Now, Rittenhouse was charged with criminal counts, including first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree intentional homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide. It's worth noting here that the homicide charges are equivalent to what other states call murder charges, which would have carried a maximum sentence of life in prison had Rittenhouse been convicted. The trial has now a Officially wrapped up, and Rittenhouse was acquitted on all accounts. So, what does all of this mean? What is the difference between murder and homicide? How do you determine those charges? And how do you defend the different degrees? Well, here to talk me through all of this and more is former federal prosecutor, former congressman host of Sunday Night in America on Fox News Channel and the host of the Trey Gowdy podcast, Trey Gowdy himself. I actually had the pleasure of talking to Trey about Thanksgiving. This is a much different topic, but Trey, you decided to come back.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I like you. Uh, I have an Abigail in my own house. And, you know, I spent so much time talking to other people at Fox like uh, Chaffetz um, (laughs) and others. And you were such a delightful departure from that. I said I would try it again.
0: (laughs) Well, that's too kind. And I'm glad that my parents named me Abigail. Since you also have an Abigail, it gives me the end. So I'll yes. thank them after this podcast.
1: That's good to thank our parents. Uh, yeah, you now know my name is Harold, so I don't bring yes. that up with my parents. Um, <laughs> which I guess is why they call me Trey. They didn't really like that name either, I guess.
0: Well, we will stick with Trey instead of Harold Watson, but it depends how this podcast goes. I mean, maybe Harold Watson is how I thank you.
1: Oh, I will know that I have done a very poor job if that's how you end this.
0: (laughs) Well, um, I appreciate you coming on, Trey. Uh, This, you know, obviously this case has kind of captivated the nation, the Kyle Rittenhouse case. So just if we go back and boil it down to the basics, can you just give our listeners a quick recap of what happened, what Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with and where we are today? He was obviously acquitted.
1: Yeah, Abby, I want you to imagine, I mean, this, this, this is basic, but, but it's also fundamental. And we, we kind of have to get our arms around this. So there's, imagine there's a body. Um, here are your options, natural causes, accident, suicide, uh, homicide, within homicide, which is a, just a fancy way of saying um, the death or the undoing or the undercutting at the hands of a person. I mean, that's what homicide means. It is death by a person. But then within that, you have lawful and unlawful. So, an unlawful homicide is what we usually call murder. Mm. That could be premeditated. um, But in many states, it doesn't have to be premeditated, including the one that I'm in. It can, you know, the malice required to transform a homicide into a murder can arise in an instant. So, you've got natural, Accident, suicide, homicide. I mean, you also have undetermined, um, but we'll skip over that. And homicide, you have lawful and unlawful. When you think unlawful, you've got murder. You've got reckless homicide. You have involuntary manslaughter. I also put like felony DUI, um, driving under the influence and causing death. Uh, Some people call that an accident. Um, I don't. Uh, That is an unlawful homicide. So this case boils down to whether or not the taking of a life or the use of deadly force was lawful or not. And usually we hear self-defense described as a right in Wisconsin. They define it as a privilege and the statute sets out what you have to disprove. And, And again, let me stop right there for a second. Back in the old days, Self-defense was an affirmative defense. In other words, the defense had to prove it. You charge me with an unlawful homicide or murder. I have to prove that I acted in self-defense. The Supreme Court said not anymore. Defendants have the duty to prove nothing. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution has to disprove self-defense. So again, going oh, back, I, I like like charts and outlines. Homicide, you got two categories, lawful and unlawful. Under unlawful, you have murder or what some people call intentional homicide. You also have reckless homicide. The difference between reckless and intentional is what's in your mind at the time. If you intend to take someone's life, that's an intentional homicide. If you act in such a willful, wanton, and reckless way as it results in someone's death. That's reckless homicide. And then you look at this privilege of self-defense. And in Wisconsin, I may not have all of these down just right, but I think I got the big ones down. They want to know whether or not you created the danger. Did you take yourself or, or create the circumstances that led to you're having to use deadly force because the law does not want you to both create the danger, create the negative circumstances, and then claim that you acted in self-defense. Did you act reasonably? Um, and, and that's important, Abby, because I may be like a lot more fearful than you. I may be like <laughs> terrified all the time.
0: Probably not.
1: <laughs> well, but, but it's not a subjective test. It's a reasonableness test. Was it reasonable that you believed that you were in imminent fear, uh, defense of yourself or others? Okay. So that's, I think, what the jury was spending its time focused on um, whether or not the state successfully disproved the defense or privilege of self-defense
0: okay so then if we're talking about what what went down um kyle rittenhouse did have a gun he was 17 years old so would that work in favor of trying to say he might have created this or how do you argue he brought that for his self-defense
1: yeah I mean, and, and that's when it gets and this is why people hate lawyers um we don't hate you though <laughs> well, I, I self-defense is a little bit different in South Carolina, um, and, and not, not for us to go back to Con Law 101, but you put your finger on the lawfulness of the possession of the firearm. In some states, committing an unlawful act itself could be an element of manslaughter or homicide, so the legality of his carrying that weapon would be relevant But as you'll note, in Wisconsin, the judge did not allow that count to go forward.
0: And why is that?
1: Uh, I think it was because the statute is so poorly drafted as it relates to the to the length of the firearm, the capabilities of the firearm. These are, again, not going back to law school, but the General Assembly can pass laws or there can be what we call common law that's kind of passed down through the centuries. These are statutes. Mm. That were drafted by Wisconsin legislators. And this statute, you literally need Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein to help <laughs> you figure it out. And so, 12 jurors, I think, and, and I didn't notice the prosecution putting up much of a fight. Yeah. So, I'll give you another example. Let's assume that you are uh, a convicted felon, just to use an absurd uh, hypothetical. That Abby is a convicted felon. Knock so on you, wood
0: right now, Trey.
1: Right, right you now. Knock on wood. I feel safe saying this is a hypothetical right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you cannot lawfully possess a firearm if you're a convicted felon. All right. You with me? You cannot. Yep. It, it's, it's, it's against federal law. So you cannot possess a firearm if you're a convicted felon.
0: Since I am now a convicted felon,
1: I am taking notes. All right. <laughs> well, let's assume that you're a convicted felon. Who is in reasonable fear for your life? Mm -hmm. Can you arm yourself then? Yes.
0: I can. Okay.
1: Yes. No? So I I never really understood the lawfulness of the firearm because even if that itself I mean in South Carolina, weirdly, it could be relevant in an involuntary manslaughter. Situation, but that is not what this is. There was no allegation that this was involuntary. The charges were intentional or reckless. There was no charge of involuntary. Okay. The lawfulness of the weapon, I, I don't think, I mean, I'm open to someone convincing me otherwise, would have been relevant to the jury's determination.
0: OK, so you're just to recap, because he in, in Wisconsin, it's it's an open carry state. So um, people can carry legal firearms in public without a permit unless they're otherwise prohibited. So if you're a convicted felon, um, but that's a certain exceptions for hunting. Minors are not allowed to carry weapons in public. Is that correct? So you're saying the reason this was kind of dismissed was because the way the law is written.
1: Yeah, that statute, as I I was listening to the judge and always kind of take note of how much of a how much of a defense the prosecution puts up when Mm -hmm. one of its charges is being dismissed. And there wasn't much of a defense put up. Uh, They didn't complain very loudly. So that that led me to believe that the prosecution also believed that this statute either didn't fit or was so uh, vague Um, as um, to be beyond the jury's ability to apply these facts to it.
0: I see. And then if just to set up my next question, can you just real quickly? So, um, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, if we're going back to what happened, he his trial was over the shootings of three men, two of whom died. Um, Can you just boil down what happened where the two died and then the the other one was injured. Because then I want to go through the different counts that he was um, convicted of.
1: Well, I don't know any more than what was on the video. And um, I have not I've not talked about the Rittenhouse case with much specificity because of this old habit I have that if I haven't seen it all, then I have I may have missed the most important part, which I agree that's that's
0: great. <laughs> that's that's how it should be. I that's you know, so many people are talking about this trial who didn't sit down and watch the whole thing. So I, I respect that a lot.
1: And I think, you know, discussing broad precepts that withstand the vagaries of individual fact patterns like, you know, what is intentional homicide? What is reckless homicide? What is self-defense? That's true. Um, that will be true, you know, tomorrow and the day after. These things come down sometimes to not nanoseconds, but milliseconds and the reasonableness of what was in the mind of the person who pulled the trigger. I can tell you where I think things began to go south uh, for the prosecution. I think most people, most prosecutors I've heard comment on it don't think the case should have been brought at all. Um, I don't I didn't watch the whole trial, so I can't. Express an opinion on that. But Mm -hmm. it did appear the surviving witness was himself armed. Um, And that is not something you want coming out for the first time uh, at trial. And you certainly don't want the fact that that weapon may have been pointed at the defendant. You don't want to learn that for the first time in front of the jury either.
0: So what, um, again, uh, just from what you saw, I'm just trying to uh, kind of lay it out for someone who maybe doesn't know all of the facts. Um, And if you don't know, it's totally fine. But with the two who died, were they armed? What was the situation there?
1: I heard no evidence that they were armed. Um, So the uh, surviving, uh, I know the judge doesn't want the word victim to be used, but I don't know what other, I mean, that word doesn't have certain legal charges to me. Like apparently it did the judge in Wisconsin, their surviving Mm -hmm. victim gunshot victim, um, was armed. The other two were not. However, um, you don't have to be armed. I, I think back Abby, you would be hard pressed to think of anything that I had not seen used to take another life Mm -hmm. hands for sure. Uh, Lots and lots of strangulation cases, uh, beating cases, brick cases, stick cases. So obviously, a jury is going to take into consideration if the um, if the defendant is armed, but the uh, complaining witnesses or victims are not. But that alone is not dispositive. Mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So then um, the different degrees of murder. Can we go by the way? I watched the trial. I'm just I'm trying to lay it out for the listeners who maybe weren't able to get all of the details and everything. Um, but I think just in a broader sense, outside of this trial, a lot of people are curious about the de- we went through. What what's the difference between homicide and murder? But can you take me through the degrees of murder?
1: Yeah. And, and for your listeners, um, what's true in Wisconsin is probably not true in their own state. It's not mm-hmm. true in the state that I'm in. Um, lots of states don't have degrees. Um, it's murder, manslaughter involuntary manslaughter. Wisconsin does have degrees. The charges first degree intentional homicide. So the, the operative word in that phrase is intentional. They're and again, that is the mind of the shooter, the mind of the person hoping to avail herself of him or himself of self-defense, which, Abby, you can imagine it is really, really difficult to crawl inside the mind of the person who um, who uses deadly force. Mm-hmm. So all you really have, you have anything that he or she may have said. You have circumstances, but you're trying to prove that. Um, scienter what is inside someone's mind but it has to be intentional homicide which this would have been this i mean the acts were intentional okay
0: yeah so that's that's interesting that you say that because what i was watching um you know they were they're trying to say and they were pressing kyle rittenhouse like well you shot with the intention to kill and they kept kind of hammering that, trying to hammer that point home. And he was kind of like, I was trying, I was acting in self-defense, that sort of thing. So is that where we got that exchange?
1: Yeah, it had to be intentional for him to avail himself of self-defense because for him to say, no, it wasn't intentional. My finger just slipped. Then all of a sudden you have undercut or some could argue that you have undercut your defense of self-defense. His Mm -hmm. position was I was. I lawfully used deadly force under the elements of Wisconsin's self-defense statute. It was intentional and lawful. And so it, he really didn't have a choice. I also happen to think the facts, at least the ones I saw, back this up that it was it was not reckless. It was intentional. Reckless is, you know, a subset of intentionality. Intentional means exactly what we know that word to mean. This is what I did, and this is what I intended to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, let's say you're acting in self-defense. Um, does it change? Because I, I remember they could say, oh, well, you you shot with the intent to kill. And um, you can be acting in self-defense without the intent to to kill. I mean, you might want to I think, you know, you always go through these things like if someone was going to come attack me, I would never want to kill another human being. But maybe you if you did have a gun, I, I, I do not. But if you shot him in the leg, for instance, and you tried to harm them so that you could get away, how does that change things?
1: What guarantee do you have that a leg shot would uh, would repel the danger, the imminent danger that you mm. believed yourself to be in? Mm hmm. And and this is where the law gets uh, very, very complicated um, and good prosecutors can break it down for the jury. I focus more on whether or not you intended to commit the act, not the consequences. You know, Abby, you could say, look, Trey, I really, really, really do not want to kill you. I really, really, really do not. But I am tired of the music you're playing and (laughs) I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot you in the foot. Okay, let's assume you hit an artery. And I bleed out. What's you, must the be, right?
0: you must be listening to like deep house music or like techno or something.
1: I'm listening <laughs> to a recording I made of myself singing. That, that sounds that lovely. Would, Trey. that would drive anyone. <laughs> that would be self defense. So you just verbalized a lack of intent to take my life, but yet you did. So what's the right charge? That's so complicated. It's murder. Yeah, but because the focus. A good prosecutor would put the focus on what the result was. I mean, unless you're like a forensic pathologist and you know where all the arteries are and well, this veins, you know, not likely. I think that's uh, that one's not a big one. So I can shoot you in this particular part of the leg. This defendant uh, really legally had no choice but to say I intentionally fired my weapon. Now, that is different from saying I intended to kill him. I intended to fire my weapon and do so in defense of myself. The consequences of that. I mean, think about the absurdity of me verbalizing, Abby, I really, 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 really don't want to hurt you. I don't. As I throw an iron towards you. Mm -hmm. The, The words are a lot less significant than the consequences. So that intentional homicide, first degree intentional homicide, I focus on whether or not you intended the act that resulted in death, not whether or not you intended death.
0: All right, we got to step aside real quickly, but class will be back in session right after this.
1: Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox Weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnews.podcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So how did they argue for Kyle Rittenhouse in that instance?
1: How did the defense or the prosecution?
0: Yeah, the defense.
1: Um that he was reasonably in fear for his life, that he intended to repel uh, the danger that he reasonably perceived, and that he did so using a firearm, um, did not have the intent to kill, but had the intent to remove what he believed reasonably to be an imminent threat to his life.
0: Got it. Okay, so you have first-degree reckless homicide. They ruled that he was not acting in a reckless way because he was acting in self-defense.
1: Yeah, well, that's a lesser that's a lesser charge than intentional. And again, keeping in mind what is in someone's head, which, you know, I don't want to go down this little rabbit hole, although I am always amazed at what great prosecutors, people who have never, ever been in a courtroom are, uh, particularly as I listen to commentators on television. Trial work is not easy. And convincing a jury. I mean, what's the last time 12 people, other than the Rittenhouse verdict, what was the last time 12 people all agreed on anything mm. in this country? <laughs> so it, it's, I don't hard. Know it's hard. It's yeah. hard. So you are, you're dealing with the intent in someone else's mind. This case was rare because the defendant testified. He told you what was in his mind. Assume he did not. Hmm. assume he did like most defendants and say, I'm presumed innocent. You haven't convinced a jury. Otherwise, I'm not saying a word, not opening my mouth. How do you prove what is in the mind, the intent of the actor? So the prosecution, I don't think, had a lot of confidence in intentional homicide. So they dropped that level of intent down from intending to take a life to acting in a reckless way, which resulted in the taking of a life. But it's the difference between what is in the mind of the person pulling the trigger. The one thing I thought, you know, as a prosecutor, I I, I did notice. Um, and again, probably would have done it differently. But if I have it right with the uh, Rosenbaum victim, there were four shots, You need to walk the jury through all four shots and you need to do so uh, painstakingly because it may be that the first shot was legally justified. It may be that the second shot was. But let's assume, Abby, that somebody, you know, uh, breaks into an apartment and you think the person has a knife and you use a gun uh, consistent with self-defense and the knife is 10 feet away, the knife's gone, the person's disabled. I mean, can you walk up and execute a kill shot at that point? No. I mean, are you still operate? Well, when, no, I don't think so either. But when was the danger sufficiently repelled or extinguished? And if the pathologist was correct, and it was the fourth shot, and I say if because you know, I have tremendous respect for pathologists, but but knowing the sequencing of shots, um, that's that's part science, but it's part art. If it was the fourth shot and if you can convince the jury that the threat was over after the third would have been tough in this case because they, the sequence was not that elongated. But you can certainly see why self how a, a fat pattern could exist where self-defense was appropriate at the beginning of the shooting, but not at the end.
0: I see. Yeah. And then when you talk about trying to prove or defend what's in somebody's head, I could imagine that could get complicated because um, obviously it's different for every person. But I could imagine if I was someone was attacking me, and this is not related to the Rittenhouse trial at all. But, um, you know, I, I think about being a woman, you know, in the city and all of that. And let's say four shots were fired, but they're they're fast. Like you said, that sequence wasn't elongated. Um, you know, how do you truly know, like even if someone's arms that they can't get up and still chase after you? And if someone's bigger than you or, you know, I mean, how do you prove something like that?
1: Well, I mean, again, I mean, I have tried very hard. I am a prosecutor. Uh, that That's just where my biases lie. Uh, but I'm also tougher on prosecutors than I am defense attorneys because I have really high expectations. Mm hmm. I thought when the prosecution's theory was that you should just stand there and take your beating because the, the shooting victim was not armed, that somehow you should just absorb your beating and not use deadly force to repel what you believe to be a threat. I just thought that was an absurd argument to make to 12 people. I mean, it'd be like me telling you, you know, Abby, you got to. Okay, they're six inches away from you, but they haven't grabbed you yet. they are four inches away from you, but they haven't grabbed you yet. I mean, at what point does it become reasonable and foreseeable what's about to happen? And so when the I mean, the prosecution was essentially arguing that Rittenhouse should absorb some blows. I mean, how the heck does he know that the weapon wouldn't wind up in the uh, shooting victim's hands? Mm -hmm. And that Rittenhouse himself would become a victim. I mean, you're you're asking 12 people who didn't spend three years in law school and haven't spent their entire career poring over Syanter and Men's Rea to sit there and say, okay, you should have taken a couple of blows, but you should have held on to your gun. And once it appeared that that wasn't going to stop, then you should have. It's just not consistent with reality and common sense.
0: Right. So uh, how did each um, of the three people, how was each one different? I mean, because I, I hear arguments for for both sides. Um, you know, he acted in self-defense with one person, but he didn't in another. How was each one different of the three people that Kyle Rittenhouse did shoot?
1: It, it, Abby, I don't know that I know enough of the fact the, the the Rosenbaum, if I have that, if I have the name of that victim right, uh, that mm. one I did listen to more of that trial. And I think it was four shots. I think he was unarmed. But if you look at the video, it almost, it looked to me as if Rittenhouse was retreating and we haven't even gotten into whether or not you have a duty to retreat, which is another subset of the self-defense analysis. It looked to me like he was trying to remove himself from the situation and was being pursued, but I did not see the other two on tape.
0: I see. Yeah. I mean, again, and I respect that uh, If just we're circling back to a lot of people are talking about this trial and and it is important to watch the entire thing, um, you know, before going through it. But just the law in general, I mean, I get so much respect to lawyers because even the difference between homicide and murder and then you have first degree murder, second degree murder, felony murder. There are so many things to keep track of. Um, so if Trey, if you were going to boil it down for everyone, um, what's the biggest thing that you 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 should know when it comes to these charges. It doesn't have to be related to Kyle Rittenhouse, but just in general, what should people know about this?
1: Well, I mean, let's take out all the names and let's just go with kind of a cold fact pattern. Yes. You have two bodies. The evidences, both of them were unarmed. You have a third person injured uh, that was armed. You're law enforcement. You're the prosecutor. Do you make the decision on your own? that this was the lawful exercise of self-defense and therefore charge no one? Um, Or do you let this uh, most magnificent justice system in the world work? And I think the other thing I, I would encourage people to keep in mind is the verdict form does not say guilty or innocent. The verdict form says guilty or not guilty. This is not a joint pursuit of the truth. That is not what trials are. Trials are whether or not the government has met its burden of proof. The government brings the charges. The government has to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. So, again, not talking about Rittenhouse, fill in the blank. Any Any crime alleged in your community. It could be that the 12 members of the jury thought, you know, I'm pretty sure he or she did it, but I'm not sure beyond a reasonable doubt. That's called not guilty. That's not called innocent. That's called not guilty. The government did not meet its burden. It's a high burden. It has to be unanimous. So this mixture of politics and our justice system only brings down the justice system. Politics is about as low as it can get, period. Mm -hmm. And the notion that we want to superimpose our political biases onto A criminal trial. You know, I will put our justice system up against our modern day political system (laughs) any day of the week.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because just in, in talking about anything, people love to have an opinion, but it, it is true. I mean, when you are convicting someone of murder um, or, you know, accusing them of doing something, it's important to take, you know, an impartial stance and really look at the law and um, kind of operate in that way. But when it comes to politics, there's a lot of emotion involved. And um, that's why we are the country that we are. I mean, we try to do things that are fair and just. And, um, you know, people might disagree with what's fair and just and how it's proven. But at the end of the day, there does have to be a system. And that's our law system.
1: Juries almost always get it right. And this is coming from someone who had them kind of express their opinion on Mm -hmm. his case over 100 times. I had over 100 jury trials in both federal and state court um, and uh, more homicide cases than I can count. And juries almost always get it right. And when I say get it right, it is not their job to, quote, figure out what happened. It is their job to decide whether or not the state met its burden. And for everyone, no matter what station they're on, to superimpose their own political beliefs or their own worldview onto something that should be as clinical as whether or not The elements of this offense have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And that, Abby, means about 95 percent certainty. So you can be 70 percent sure that something happened and it's not enough in a courtroom. So the fact that in this 50-50 divided country we live in, 12 people agreed Mm -hmm. that the government did not meet its burden of proof, You raised another point. I I teach a class. I actually teach a class with a federal prosecutor at Walford College, which is a small liberal arts school. And I walked in last Tuesday night and I did it on purpose just because I am a malevolent person. I walked (laughs) in and I said, all right, how many of y'all been watching the Ahmaud Arbery trial? Yo, some hands went up. How many of y'all been watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial? Almost all the hands went up. I said, how many of you have an opinion? Those hands still went up. How many of you think he's guilty, not guilty? And then I said, how many of you have watched every second of the trial? And all the hands went down. Mm. How in the world? I mean, the one thing the judge tells the jury is that you cannot even begin, not even begin to deliberate on guilty or not guilty until the last witness has spoken and the last piece of evidence has been introduced. Can't even start. And these are 12 people who have watched everything, and they've done it in person where you can judge the demeanor and the credibility and the believability. They're not doing it in snippets, and they're not doing it reading some article in the New York Times. They're watching it. So if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to watch every single moment of the trial, then you don't know what you don't know. And I am uh, shocked that anyone with any degree of conviction – can say what they think should happen if they haven't watched it.
0: It's recess time, but we'll be back soon.
1: So the lesson for these students was, I mean, what are you basing your opinion on? Right. And and they're doing it. Based on the one thing that we don't allow in the courtroom, which is anything other than the evidence.
0: How do you ensure that the the jurors don't come in with any I mean, I guess you can't ensure that, but everyone has a political view. But how do you remove that of just, you know, regular folks that didn't go to law school? How do you take that out of it?
1: It's what I love about the jury system. If you like small government and and remember, conservatives used to like small government. It doesn't get any smaller than 12 of your fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge, whether it's O.J. Simpson or whether it is, you know, uh, Lacey Peterson, the challenge is not finding people that have never heard about the case that have been living under a rock. The challenge is whether or not you can separate what you've heard from what will or will not be proven to you. And that requires discipline to be able. I mean, I was always amazed when juries would walk out and say, we thought he did it, but it wasn't proven. That that is a level of discernment Mm. that thriving, vibrant republics have. The difference between what I thought what I felt, even what I believed, and what was proven to me. Which is why when I see not guilty verdicts, the first place I look is whether or not the prosecution presented the case in the fairest and most effective way that could be presented. And if the answer is yes, then the jury did exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm. And if the answer is no, then you should take that up with the prosecutor.
0: What Speaking of jury, when, when Kyle Rittenhouse had to pull the names out of you know, the hat essentially, what, uh, what was that all about?
1: I've never seen that before in my life, <laughs> uh, in South Carolina, we used to have uh, a blind person, um, pull the names out of, uh, out of a cylinder because you want, um, you want the jury to be fairly selected. Uh, you don't want to look at the name and see, okay, Abby, I like Abby and we'll put Abby on the jury. It yeah. needs to be random. And I've never seen the defendant. Now, obviously, defendants can exercise strikes. Defendants can sit beside. And by the way, juries are not picked. They're unpicked. You get 24 names and you get to unpick some of them. And then you're left with 12. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that done before, but I also... You know, going back to most dangerous thing in the world is to watch part of a movie. Uh, The part of the trial I saw, I, I don't I don't even think the judge got the law right on what he was most animated about, which is, you know, post arrest pre Miranda silence used during impeachment, which is a really, really small line of cases. He seemed really, really adamant that the prosecution had violated some 50-year-old precedent. I think it's still an open question of whether or not you can use post-arrest, pre-Miranda silence, when the defendant testifies to impeach the defendant. So the fact that the judge also let the defendant pick uh, the alternates or pick jurors um, yeah. out, of, out of the cylinder, I've never seen that done before.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was one of the most interesting things that I saw because his lawyer even said, look, I... I um, The jurors that Kyle Rittenhouse kind of eliminated, you know, by blindly eliminating were the ones that we thought, OK, well, they probably are leaning in our direction. So that's a lot to live with. If you're um, charged with something and you're being accused of something and you end up removing the ones who actually I mean, that's just I can't imagine. Um, I hope that nobody ever has to go through that. I mean, people obviously do, but, um, you know, I can't. That's just a, a tough situation to be in.
1: Well, I'm pretty I feel pretty safe in saying what I'm about to say. I don't really ever see you in that situation. Um, <laughs>
0: Thank you. I hope not. I try to be a it, good person.
1: <laughs> if you uh, if you are, you give me a call. I'll come out of retirement because I'm, I'm almost you. positive that you're not guilty of whatever <laughs> you're charged with. But you raise a fascinating point which judges more than anything else in the world, more than world peace, uh, more than uh, universal happiness. Judges don't want to be reversed. That's Mm -hmm. what motivates them in life. And the state cannot appeal. So if the state loses, there is no appeal, which is why sometimes judges tend to rule more towards the defendant than for the state, because they don't want to be reversed. And if they're being asked, all of these, I've actually watched more of the uh, Ahmed Arbery murder trial than I did the Rittenhouse. Those defense attorneys were testing that judge. They were, we want to put this in, making the judge say no. We want to do this, making the judge say no. They're trying to build the record for appeal because if you're the prosecution, you got to win at trial, you got to win on appeal, you got to win on post conviction relief, you got to win at every stage. And the defense only has to win once.
0: That's yeah. I think people who I don't want to overgeneralize, but it's it's difficult to understand the law system if you didn't go to law school, because there are so many intricacies like that, that you you wouldn't really realize. And we could do a whole podcast on just how all of that works with an appeal and all of that. Um, I wish we had more time,
1: Well, it <laughs> but would put maybe you that's to a sleep. podcast in the future. It would put you to sleep. So whenever your ambient prescription runs out and you want me to discuss the appellate process with you, you let me know. <laughs>
0: Um, great. Well, I mean, you have that, that nice Southern twang. So I feel like it probably pulls people in. So you have at least that going for you when you talk about this.
1: (laughs) I I loved being in front of a jury more than any place in the world. It was my favorite place in the world to be. And I, I'm a cynic. I have a very, very, very low opinion of our fellow uh, mankind, (laughs) but I was mesmerized by the way juries take their oath seriously. Mm -hmm. And the ability to say, I mean, I sat there the other night counting the number of my beloved daughter sentences that began with the phrase, I feel. And I, because I keep trying to say, you know, Abigail is, I think, I believe uh, we're going to kind of minimize the I feel part of it Mm -hmm. for a jury to be able to say either I felt the person did it or I thought the person did it, but it was not proven to me beyond a reasonable doubt is what makes our system so amazing and why good prosecute you have to be My critique of the prosecution was: you have to have this magical combination of passion and logic. You have to have logic. You have to logically explain this. But it's okay to to engage in some passionate reasoning. You don't have to read it off of a flip note and start checking things. Literally checking things as you make your point. That is not persuasive. Juries usually get it right. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the verdict form right now, and there's not a verdict form. I don't think in the country that says guilty or innocent. It says guilty or not guilty. And not guilty means the state had the burden and did not meet it. And since you're presumed innocent, you remain innocent. That's what that means.
0: Yeah. And and I think you bring up a valid point, especially in the world that we live in with social media and people know that um, these high profile cases are going to um, create some sort of resistance, right? I mean, people kind of come out and they protest the verdict and that's always happened. But in in a world where our lives and our trials are so visible, um, these jurors have a lot on their shoulders and for them to be able to put their emotion and their political beliefs Beliefs and their thoughts um, aside just to uh, determine the outcome of this based off of the law is a really, really challenging thing to do and, um, you know, a hard position to be in. So, like you said, that's what makes this law system in our country, you know, one of the greatest is because we do have a lot of things in place to ensure that. But, um, you know, Trey, you have been awesome. And as we wrap this up, what do you think is the biggest takeaway that our listeners should know?
1: That our justice system, while imperfect, is uh, light years better than our current political system. And um, it is a system um, where you have to reach the right result and do it the right way. Um, It is not simply about winning. Um, It is about doing things the right way. And it starts with a presumption of innocence and it ends with a jury unanimity. And there are uh, evidence rules and there are procedure rules. And just contrast that with politics where, you know, Abby, if we can get away with it, we should say it. Mm. And if we can allege it and get away with it, that's great, too. And there's really no one left in our country, I don't think, that hasn't already made up his or her mind as it relates to most political issues. And in the justice system, we're asking people to leave that at the at the front door of the courthouse and come with an open mind and be moved and motivated only by the evidence. So the takeaway is we should actually watch more trials and watch less people talking about the trials. Because it is the trials that are magical.
0: Exactly. And um, where jurors go in and and they have to set their opinions aside. But the people who are talking about the trial who weren't in that courtroom, if they didn't watch the whole thing, they um, are presenting their opinion on it based off of some maybe views they had before the trial. So I think that's a really valid point that you make. And I'm going to take the advice that you give your Abigail. And I'm going to say, instead of I feel, I'm going to say, I believe that this was a great <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and thank you so much, Trey. Uh, it was truly a pleasure being on with you again and um, having you on. So hopefully you come back in
1: the future. Abby, I would love that. And um, my wife tells me to quit correcting our daughter and let her say whatever she wants. So <laughs> I'm going we need to learn. <laughs> I just, I am just uh, constantly, uh, I guess, moved by persuasion and persuasion is what happens in a courtroom. And it requires that the listener be open-minded and the advocate be effective and logical. And that's why that will always be the best job I ever had. I did it, I guess, for 16 years and people ask me why I left Congress. The better question is, why did you leave the courtroom? Because you seem to love it so much more and they're right. I did.
0: Well, and I think that's what makes you so successful at what you do with Fox is that you are very open-minded and you're always willing to listen. So we appreciate that about you. And, and, um, it's such a good thing to have in TV and journalism in general. And, um, again, I'm very grateful that you were able to share your thoughts with me on this podcast.
1: I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. And if you have any questions about college football, that's actually the thing I'm most knowledgeable about. So I hope you have me back on.
0: Uh, Well, we won't talk about your brother-in-law who went to Clemson um, since you went to South Carolina. And we won't talk about how UCLA gave USC a beating last weekend.
1: I watched that. Um, I'm sorry for you. Um, my beloved South Carolina Gamecocks became bowl eligible. With, oh, don't, don't say it's it. A, it's a miracle. Uh, <laughs> so this is a season for miracles. There and you that go. was one. We're going to a bowl.
0: Well, I'm glad that one
1: USC team is is doing well. Congratulations to you. <laughs> you take care. Try I'll talk th- to you soon.
0: Thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving.
1: Yes, ma'am. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Right, if you miss anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways from my conversation with Trey Gowdy. Number one, there's a difference between homicide and murder. Homicide is the killing of one person by another, it's a broader term. Murder focuses on the intent. It was argued in the courtroom that Kyle Rittenhouse acted with the intent to repel the threat, not necessarily with the intention to kill. Number two, In a broader sense, when speaking about previous cases he's seen, Trey said what he always finds interesting is when the jury comes out and expresses they thought he or she did it, but the state didn't meet its burden to prove that he or she was guilty. The job of a juror is to act impartially and look at the evidence. That's part of the challenge, but also part of what Trey says makes our justice system better than our political system. And number three. Trey emphasized that it's not guilty and innocent. It's guilty and non-guilty. The defense isn't always trying to prove innocence. It's trying to prove that their client is not guilty. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Trey Gowdy. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed.